ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's one of the most beautiful parts of the Mediterranean, almost a classic Instagram post, but it could soon be a flashpoint in the Gaza war. Hello, it's the Religion and Ethics Report, Andrew West with you on RN and ABC Listen. Before we take you to South Lebanon, there's been an extraordinary development in this conflict. The Catholic leader in Jerusalem has offered to exchange himself for the Israeli children that Hamas is holding hostage. Cardinal Pierre Battista Pisabella has been a peace builder in the Middle East for 30 years. This offer comes as the Vatican reveals it's opening its own diplomatic back channels to try to negotiate with Hamas to free hostages. Luke Coppen of the online journal The Pillar has been following the story. Luke, uh, welcome. How did this come about? The Cardinal was asked whether he would be willing to be personally exchanged for hostages who are being held in Gaza. And he replied instantly that he was more than willing to be exchanged. He was completely ready for it. It's quite rare for a cardinal to make this kind of extremely striking pronouncement. Well, you'd have to assume that his offer was made sincerely because Cardinal Pisabella is deeply entrenched in Israeli and Palestinian society, isn't he? Yes, that's right. And I think if there was any doubt about whether he meant it, he did repeat the offer in a subsequent interview. So even if he was speaking off the cuff initially, it's clear that he truly meant that he was willing to be exchanged for hostages. And he said there were some kind of thoughts going on in the background that he couldn't possibly talk about further at the moment. But yeah, it's a serious offer. Is Hamas likely to accept it? We don't know, uh, in short, because of the chaotic situation that there currently is in Gaza. We don't know who these talks would be with, because Cardinal Pizzabella has said quite recently that it's impossible to talk to Hamas, certainly directly. No, I, I think there's a sort of the fog of war surrounding this. Can't be certain that there's any direct communication at all. It seems like there may be some kind of indirect communication going on, but what that is precisely, we don't know. That is fascinating, Luke, because we know that the Vatican already has a secret uh, peace overture to try to end the Russia-Ukraine war. To the best of your knowledge, is there some back-channel diplomacy now going on with the Vatican to try to end this uh, disastrous uh, conflict in the Middle East? I believe that the Vatican is trying to establish a communications channel or several communications channels at the moment. And the reason I think that is that the Vatican Secretary of State, Cardinal Pietro Parolin, said that just a few days ago. And he's the Vatican official who has overall responsibility for diplomacy. Vatican officials have been working feverishly to work out who the right people would be to speak to in order to facilitate the release of hostages and also the admission of humanitarian aid to the civilians in Gaza. If Hamas does not accept Cardinal Pizabella's offer to exchange himself for the children who are being held hostage, what does Israel make of this offer? I mean, it's difficult to generalise about an, an entire country, but it seems that Isabella's offer has certainly been noticed in Israel, but noticed by the Israeli public. I imagine that there's a degree of appreciation for it as well, because he would be effectively putting his life on the line if this... Uh, handover were to be taken up. I think there's going to be some appreciation for him. I think it's also going to uh, raise the profile of Pizzabella, I think not only within Israel, but in the wider world, 
beyond the Catholic world as well. Of course, the Christian population and indeed the Catholic Christian population in the Holy Land has been shrinking quite considerably over the years. What standing, though, does he have in the region, especially among Palestinians and Israelis? Well, he has an extremely difficult role as the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem because his his congregation, as you say, is is extremely diverse. It includes people on both sides of this conflict. People generally acknowledge that he is a, a fair and authoritative figure. He's still a relatively young man in ecclesiastical terms, but even just in the short time that he's been Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem, he has generally, I think, made a good impression on people and people see him as, as a sincere man trying to do what he can within the very limited resources that he has as Latin Patriarch. As you say, it's not a huge community that he's shepherding in numerical terms, and he's not a central figure in the politics of the region by any means, but nevertheless someone whose voice seems to be cutting through. Well, the other thing, Luke, uh, that you point out, though, in your piece and your reporting is that his community in Gaza is a particularly vulnerable one. Um, In what way? The same way as all other civilians in Gaza at the moment, the Christians are are no less vulnerable to the violence that's taking place all around them. And of course, it's a majority Islamic community. So the loyalties of Christians perhaps might be questioned at at some points. So Cardinal Pizzabella has to be very, very careful in his comments and weigh everything carefully in order not to make the plight of Gaza's Christians even worse than it is. In the past few days, there's been a diplomatic flare-up, though, between Israel and the Vatican. What's the root of that? This was triggered by a statement that was put out by a group called the Patriarchs and Leaders of the Churches in Jerusalem. And it was put out on the very day of the horrific massacres that were conducted by Hamas in southern Israel. And the Israeli ambassador to the Holy See objected to the statement. He felt that it should have condemned the atrocities wholeheartedly, and he felt that some of the other considerations that were in the statement were just ill-timed. From that point, there began a war of words over the statements that were being put out subsequently by this group. I should point out, having read that statement, it doesn't in any way exonerate Hamas for what it did for the atrocities that it uh, committed. I think, though, the statement was talking about an end, uh, trying to end all violence, though, wasn't it? Yes, I think that's right. I think the particular objection that the uh, Israeli ambassador had was drawing a parallel at that particular moment between the suffering of Israeli and Palestinian civilians on a day when hundreds and hundreds of Israeli civilians had been massacred in their homes. He felt that it was a bit too even-handed, perhaps we can put it that way, and protested quite strongly to the Vatican. And the Vatican has made a number of steps since then to try and reassure Israeli diplomatic officials that it deeply condemns the massacre of the civilians in southern Israel. I notice that the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, has been in Jerusalem recently, possibly scoping out uh, the idea that he and Pope Francis and the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew, who oversees the Orthodox churches, might issue a joint call for a ceasefire. Is it possible, by the way, Luke, that we could actually see Pope Francis back in the Middle East because he made a trip to Israel and Palestine, he made a trip to Iraq too. Is there a chance that he might return? I think he would like to, but a trip, for example, to Jerusalem is extremely complicated, not simply because there's a war at the moment, which makes a papal trip difficult to impossible, but also because there's so many ecumenical considerations as well. There was talk of him going to Jerusalem to meet 
with the Russian Orthodox leader, Patriarch Kirill, but that was abandoned. There's so many things come into play as soon as you mention a papal trip to Jerusalem. He could go elsewhere in the region. There are indications that he would like to go to Dubai for the next UN climate change conference, which begins at the end of November. And he certainly has visited the Middle East quite frequently during his 10 years as Pope. Uh, He's made notable visits. And I think he was hoping to build up relations between the Christian world and the Muslim world through these trips. And I think he's had a degree of success in doing that. Just finally on that point, Luke, he has actually built, I think, a very close relationship with the Grand Mufti at the Al-Azhar University, I think it is, in Cairo, recognised as the premier Islamic school of teaching, at least for Sunnis. How is the Vatican trying, to the best of your knowledge, to leverage these contacts and leverage these connections to maybe try to achieve some peace in the Middle East? That's all behind a curtain that we can't see, unfortunately. But we do know that the Vatican has poured resources into building up relations with Sunni Muslims and also Shia Muslims. Let's not forget Pope Francis's historic trip to Iraq, uh, where he met some a very senior Shia leader. So the Vatican has really been putting the work in over the past 10 years and longer uh, to try and build up these relationships. And no doubt it's, it's calling on that network now as it attempts to find its role in this present crisis. Luke Coppen, he's a senior editor with The Pillar, which is an online magazine that covers the Catholic world. We'll put a link to Luke's article at our website. Luke, thank you for joining us on the Religion and Ethics Report. Thanks very much, Andrew. Now, picture rolling hills dotted with small villages, family farms, livestock grazing, bread baking in wood-fired ovens. This could be rustic France or rural England or another Mediterranean landscape that just beckons tourists. But this is the borderland between Israel and Lebanon, the so-called Blue Line, and it could become the most dangerous flashpoint in the latest Middle East war. The area is controlled by the Iranian-backed Shia movement Hezbollah, which Israel is also threatening to wipe out. Australian researcher Vanessa Newby is now with Leiden University in the Netherlands, and she's been on the border recently. So the Blue Line is a very beautiful part of the world. It's rolling grasslands, steep cliffs, rural farmland, interspersed with villages. There's even a crusader castle there. It's really a stunning part of Lebanon. Now, in some places, the Blue Line is marked by blue barrels. And in others, where the Blue Line runs close to a road or a Lebanese village, Israel's constructed these high concrete walls, which I confess are not that nice to look at. In addition, on the Israeli side, in most places, there's also what the UN calls a technical fence, which is essentially a wire fence uh, armed with a number of surveillance and technical equipment and fences to prevent illegal incursions into Israeli territory. And the local population on the Lebanese side is mainly, I would say, small business owners, farmers. And there's also, of course, many holiday homes for Mm. Lebanese who live and work outside Lebanon or in Beirut. In fact, the New York Times Lebanese journalist who died in Syria, Anthony Shadid, he was building a holiday home in the region. It's not a border, though, uh, because as I understand it, there is still no agreed border between Lebanon and Israel. That's correct. It's what officially is termed a line of withdrawal, which essentially refers to two militaries withdrawing from an active war. It's not a ceasefire. 
which is, again, another formal agreement, and it's certainly not a peace agreement. So it's literally a line of withdrawal, and it's become more reified, become more real, because in 2000, when the Israelis withdrew from the south of Lebanon, they had been occupying a zone called the Zone of Security in South Lebanon. Once they withdrew from that, the UN drew, literally in blue ink, a line to demarcate between the two states. And so that is what the blue line is. That's why it's called the Blue Line. You've been there several times on field work. What did you discover there, Vanessa? The funny thing is, is that I think a lot of people, when they imagine that area, they imagine it to be this kind of militarised zone with lots of troops of Hezbollahi marching up and down. But it's in reality nothing like that. What I have encountered is the most incredible hospitality from every villager I met. And I should stress it doesn't make any difference whom they support politically. Because the area has been so cut off from Lebanon for decades, people are always happy to see you when you visit. I was in a group and we were touring the Blue Line on a desperately cold January night. We ended up in Bint Jabal, a village close to the border. There was a small bakery open and they essentially fed us for free. Mm. They plied us with these hot pastries, these hot bread-like pastries known as manouche, and they gave us homemade jam to take away with us. That village is traditionally regarded as a Hezbollah stronghold, and there we were foreigners, and they couldn't wait to welcome us. And whenever I interviewed people for my research on the UN mission in South Lebanon, I was always given lunch, and people always wanted to tell me their stories of what it's like to live in such an unpredictable security environment. The people there really seem to have overcome a great deal of adversity. You you do mention there multiple times that it's a Hezbollah stronghold. Hezbollah is a Shia group. How important is religion, by the way, to the lives of the people who live there? Lebanon is what we would call a sectarian state. Unfortunately, the political divisions are often, but not exclusively, dictated by religious affiliation. There's actually 18 official religions in Lebanon. However, the larger ones, of course, are the Shiite population, the Sunni population, the Christian populations, and the Druze. To an extent, religion does often dictate your political preferences, but as with anything, it's not as simple as that. In the south of Lebanon in particular, this is definitely Hezbollah's part of the world because the population has a large Shiite component. And as I've said, Shiite Muslims in Lebanon either support Amal or Hezbollah, two political parties, but they are politically aligned and they act in tandem. In other communities in the south, so for example, the Druze or Christian communities, politically, they're more inclined to possibly make peace with Israel. So they don't like it when Hezbollah provokes incidents on the border. Mm. Does Hezbollah, Vanessa, command a genuine loyalty from the people there? Because you've mentioned that there is discomfort at the idea that um, these people could get caught in the crosshairs of another conflict. Hezbollah does command an incredible amount of loyal support. What you have to remember is that since 1978, the local population in South Lebanon has experienced five Israeli invasions and a prolonged occupation. Now, of course, it's not as simple as that. These activities were in response to attacks on Israel, Mm. first from Palestinians and then from Hezbollah. But from the point of view of local civilians who suffered these invasions, Hezbollah is seen as the only force capable of defending them from what they perceive to be Israeli aggression. Mm. Among the population in South Lebanon, many believe Israel's real goal is to take their land. 
whatever political affiliation you have, ultimately, even it, during peacetime, you may wax and wane. When you feel existentially threatened by another entity, you're more inclined to align yourself with the group that's going to, in your view, protect you from threats. Yeah. You've written very recently in a fascinating piece, we'll put a link to it at our website, that this could become the next flashpoint in this terrible conflict. How? Quite frankly, in a very concrete way, it could become a new front, possibly a second front for a war against Israel. Right now, there continues to be shelling and gunfire between the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF, and Hezbollah. I would say at the moment it appears to be proportional, but if either party considers the other to have gone too far, then the gloves come off. Hezbollah is known to be backed by Iran and Syria, and having the backing of not one but two states makes the sub-state militia, like Hezbollah, very powerful. Arms can be shipped from Iran to Syria and transported to Lebanon overland, so they have a line of supply. So if Hezbollah want to go to war and Iran and Syria support that goal, they can. And the real trigger for escalation will be if Iran announces it's at war with Israel, then we have the potential for even a nuclear confrontation. Now, I don't want to scaremonger, and I really hope it won't come to that, but these are the kind of stakes we're talking about. Vanessa, if we cast our mind back 40 years when Israel went all the way to Beirut. But how likely, at least, is another Israeli invasion, even if it's just a few kilometres across the border? I think it really depends, as I said, on whether or not one or other of the parties believes the other has gone too far. At the moment, they're playing a very dangerous game of tit for tat. The responses are proportional. Both parties are not keen to launch into full-scale conflict. That's why it's so precarious, because we don't know. There is a concept in military terminology that I write about called the strategic corporal. And the strategic corporal is the person on the ground who can take one action that can trigger a much larger response. And what we have on the blue line is the risk that a strategic corporal, either some low-ranking military officer in the IDF or some low-ranking Hezbollahi, takes an action that has profound consequences that trigger a much larger response. When we talk about it in the cold light of day, we think to ourselves, what could possibly be gained by another Israeli invasion? They've invaded six times. They've never managed to gain a real foothold. They've always had to withdraw. Why would they do it again? But I think you have to remember that certainly, as I understand it in the state of Israel, Hezbollah is seen as an existential threat because it is backed by Iran. Is there anything, anyone, any force keeping these two sides apart? The focus of so much of my research, the United Nations interim force in Lebanon, interim is really a bit of a misnomer at this stage. They've been around since 1978 and they're still there today. And they are there precisely to stop these kind of incidents, these what we call security incidents, triggering a larger confrontation. And they come under a lot of criticism, I would add, because they are not able to prevent the current situation and the 2006 war. But these things happen when the strategic environment changes. You know, what happened in Gaza last week has changed the strategic environment. In 2006, it was what you would call a security incident, but UNIFIL can only patrol so far. But they are there. They patrol the blue line on a daily basis. They shine an international spotlight on the blue line so that people are aware 
of what's going on at the international community level, because no one's clean in this conflict. Mm -hmm. No side can claim innocence. Both sides have done things that they might regret. And so having that international spotlight is critical, not least to help civilians either evacuate or help them with medical aid during these, these terrible moments of crisis. Dr. Vanessa Newby of Leiden University. Just before the Gaza war broke out, Pope Francis issued a major statement on climate change. It seems to have gotten lost in the headlines. But it rang with anger and frustration at global corporations and governments. Francis said they had not tackled carbon emissions and rising temperatures, which will threaten the poorest communities. But Christians at the grassroots seem to have heeded the Pope's message because they're among the most environmentally aware and increasingly active citizens. The National Church Life Survey is the biggest poll in Australia after the census. It's just released the data dealing with the environment. The director is Professor Ruth Powell. There's a great awareness and we're interested to see there's also an integration of church attenders' understanding of their faith and how that applies to the environment as well. So most church attenders understand that climate change is happening. They have different perspectives on whether it's human-caused or more as part of a natural fluctuation, but there's very little doubt that climate change is taking place now. We know this dominates news headlines on a very regular basis, but you'd have to think things like papal statements would be having an impact in the pews. Yes, indeed. And I hope those who hear those papal statements and statements from other denominational leaders or leaders in the in the local church context will be encouraged to learn that from our latest National Church Life Survey across 20 denominations, hundreds of thousands of people, nine in 10 church attenders say that Christians have a responsibility to care for the environment. That's a great sort of at least starting point of that integration of faith and care for the whole of creation. I'm going to drill down into how they think the churches and they themselves should respond personally. But first of all, how many church attenders see climate change as caused by humanity? We ask them, you know, do you think it's even happening? And this is something obviously we've been tracking for some time. Do you even engage the possibility that climate change is happening? So we know that the majority now say, yes, it's happening. The conditional part of it is that 56% of church attenders say not only is it happening, but it is human caused. And therefore, the responsibility is very much on, on us. Another 32% position themselves and say, look, we think it's happening, but we are seeing it in a longer time frame perhaps as part of the natural fluctuation of Earth's temperatures. Only 7% say they don't know, and a very small 5% say, I don't think climate change is happening. That's the balance at the moment. One figure does come through very clearly, though, and I guess it's not a surprise, given you're talking about uh, people of faith. They do see it as a moral issue, don't they? That's right. Depending on how you ask the question, you can get slightly different responses, and that's about nuance. Those who see it as a moral issue, half of all church attenders actually say it's part of the mission of the church. So that's a very bold and expansive statement to say this is part of the mission of the church, that we should be involved actively in the restoration of all of creation. Because there's certainly some positions where you'd say, look, humanity has 
misread, if you like, biblical messages about dominating creation, dominating the earth, rather than a stewarding approach. And I think that's a shift in understanding. But we're hearing from leaders that not only do they say we should care for the environment, so that's part of the language as well, nine in 10 attenders and leaders say we should care. We're learning that nine in 10 leaders say we should be active on issues to do with the environment. We have a responsibility as Christians to be active on these issues. Mm -hmm. So depending on your language, whether you frame it as a moral issue, as a mission issue, or just a straight statement, Christians should be active, Christians should care, there is this shift happening or a, a maintaining of a position that faith and action are integrated. Is this, Ruth, partly because they're not persuaded that governments are doing enough? You asked that question. We did, we did. Certainly in this most recent round, we're sitting at one in three church attenders say that they are satisfied with the government's response on these matters. It's easier to point the finger, and I think that part of what we also do is look at what personal responsibility, what personal action people take. But on that question, yes, one in three are satisfied, which leaves the rest in a different position. Mm -hmm. Well, what do the Christian respondents say is their personal responsibility, actions that they personally must take to alleviate climate change? This is the individual response, the family response, the household response. We gave them a whole list of things. The things that came out as the most common, which I think many people who do not practice faith also embrace, but what we learned from Christian church attenders is that nearly 90% of them say they recycle or they compost. Simple actions but important actions like turning off lights is very high as well. More than half of all church attenders are doing things such as reducing their water use intentionally, thinking about their use of gas or electricity, so those sort of consumables, and actually adapting their own household practices around better care, if you like, of, of those things. So that's on the personal front. What about institutionally at their parishes and in other religious organisations? This one was really interesting, and I think we have been asking these questions every five years in our National Church Life Survey, which we do in the same year as the National Census. It's an aligning of that sort of major national snapshot. In this area, things like views are generally fairly consistent now. We watch some change over time, but in, you know, from 2016 through to 2021, 22, it was fairly consistent. When it comes to actions, what we saw a big change in in 2021-22 was around what local churches are doing. Now, there are about 11,500 local churches spread across the whole country. I think there's even more churches than there are local post offices or even schools. So these are locally embedded organisations where people gather. When those organisations are doing something, it does impact communities, small rural communities, city communities, and all the rest of it. So what we learned about what local churches are doing is a huge increase in their recycling practices, in their use of environmentally friendly consumables, so that they're actually thinking about the environment when they purchase those consumables as organisations. We also have seen a big increase in the engagement of environmental issues in the context of their worship services. So whether that's prayers, 
music, songs, and whether it's the focus of a special Sunday or a week. I know that many churches across the country mark September as the season of creation. And they particularly invest in that period of time of drawing attention to, as Christians would say, God is the creator. God continues to create. We have done damage to God's creation and we have a responsibility to steward that creation. So framed in that faith language and underlined, but very interesting to see huge increases in what local churches are doing. And that requires committees and councils to actually align Mm. their ideas with their action. Ruth Powell, who heads the National Church Life Survey. And that is it for the program. You can find us at ABC Listen. Thanks to Hong Jang and Harvey O'Sullivan. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.